Greetings and welcome to the latest episode of the Chirping the Cats podcast. Your host, David's work here with you and our first podcast coming to you in quarantine mode as we are set up and locked down as uh, hopefully everybody out there is staying home and staying safe as a uh, Right now, we're just kind of chilling. The NHL is in pause, as are all of their uh, live sports, and uh, we're working our way through it. Now that we've got the uh, podcast capabilities set up from home, I'm going to welcome the first guest uh, in this new setting, and that is uh, Florida Panthers PA announcer. You've heard him, Panthers fans. You know the voice, Andrew Ember. Andrew, thank you so much for joining me today, man. Hey, David. Thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure, man. We've uh, We've been buddies on social media for a while now, but it's finally good to be able to do this i know we've been spitballing it for a while so uh so obviously we've both got the, a little bit of extra time right now in our hands so what what better time to do it than now right hey it's a long time in the making man there you go so uh we'll dive right in at the beginnings i know like as the panthers pa announcer it's your job but you've been a panthers fan since basically day one right like you went to your first panthers game i think you told me in your the inaugural season yeah uh i was only four or five years old, but my dad managed to get his hands on some tickets. Uh, We went with family friends and it was really just one of those love at first sight things happening with a sport. Um, So I may have been, you know, at that super young age, but something about the sport just captivated me. I think a lot of people experience that when they go to their first game live, because there's something about hockey in the building that just makes it a totally unique and incredible experience. But yeah, it was, it was the first season and I have been a fan ever since. And it's all thanks to just hitting up the Miami arena all the way back in 93, 94. Yeah. It's, it was a great place to go to your first. It's where I went to my first game too. So a really cool, like the older buildings, they're so uh, they're smaller. It's much more uh, intimate of a setting. So I, I love visiting the old buildings. There's only like, I think the only one left is uh, NASA on Long Island. Um, so it, it's a shame. Yeah, I get it that obviously we need the new buildings, the big buildings and all that stuff, but the old ones were so cool. I used to love going to like New Jersey and even some of the, uh, the AHL rinks nowadays. So uh, anyway, got a little sidetracked there. Um, <laughs> now, as far as like early Panthers memories, like, do you have any memories from like the 96 playoff run stuff like that, uh, throwing rats on the ice? Yeah, of course. I mean, so oh, nice. I'm sure you remember how hard it was to get your hands on tickets for the playoff run in 1996 that run really just took us from you know oh this is a cool thing hockey's in south florida and then it really became a hockey town in that run and i have memories of first not being at games in the sense that my dad and i would line up at blockbuster video and they would like print out tickets or something and there would only be a few And we would almost always get shut out. And it was just one of those things where they would give it to whoever was standing in line first. And maybe they had five or 10 or however many came out for that location. And we usually did not get our hands on them. Um, But we were lucky enough to go to one game. If memory serves, I believe it was game two of the Florida-Boston opening round series uh, back in the Miami arena. And it was just an unbelievable experience. There's something about that playoff hockey that's just no other sport really comes close to it. And I still remember we won that game. We had the two games to zero series lead. And I remember, I don't have a ton of memories from when I'm super young, but at that age, uh, one of the things that sticks out the most to me is walking out of the uh, Miami arena and hearing some fans as they were walking down the stairs, they were going sweep, sweep, sweep. And everyone wanted to win four straight and they almost did it. We won it in five. And uh, but that was the only game I was able to attend during the 1996 run. But oh man, did we watch every single minute of every single game on television? <laughs> oh yeah. I, even I remember. Uh, I guess that year I was 13 when they went on that playoff run. I can remember dancing around the living rooms. I remember wa- at the Stanley Cup party for the first game, running through the house we were at. I have no idea whose house it was, but when Tom Fitzgerald scored the first goal of the finals and it was like, oh my God, we're doing this, we're doing this. And <laughs> So for sure, man, those are some fun memories from from being kids. And I remember I, like the Panthers pack tickets that they used to print out for every game. Yes. It, it's crazy to think how hard it was to get Panthers tickets back in the day. Um, but it just goes to show you, and it's something that like I've been preaching for a long time that this is just a town that loves winning so much. And if the Panthers could just pull that together for a little while, like I'm sure they'd reap the benefits of just South Florida being such a star bleeping town. So hopefully the team right now is going to get us there. We know people will come. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. 
it's like Field of Dreams, but in you know <laughs> swamps at sunrise. But you know, if you win, they will come. You know, speaking of dancing around the living room, um, I we had similar Great things segue. in my house. <laughs> I was probably seven or eight years old during that run, and I still I, I have this this memory vaguely in my head. My dad put on Come and Ride the Train, and we were like going around the living room, the dining room, and we were we had this whole train going. And I'm pretty sure he like bashed his hip into the dining room table, and <laughs> it was just a mess. But it was hilarious, and it was just like deliriously good times. I think that was right after we won the Eastern Conference Finals, so there was it was just unbelievable. Nice, nice. <laughs> it's such a cathartic thing to do to ha- to like remember these times. Like if you're listening to this podcast right now and you're a Panthers fan and you remember those days, I want you to just hit the pause button in a moment and just take a second and relive your Panthers memories. Just go ahead. We'll wait. Just hit the pause button. But just go ahead and give yourself that little euphoric uh, trip down memory lane because, God, it, it's just so fun to remember those times, man. Absolutely. Actually, one more story for that 1996 run that's kind of silly also, but I also have this distant memory of playing – we called it hand soccer or hand hockey. We would be on our hands and knees, and we would have, like, beach balls and stuff, and we were – we were hitting them with our hands and we had someone playing in goal. Of course, like whenever you were in goal, you were the Beezer. There was no one else to be. And I still remember making this save in goal. It went off like the tip of my thumb. And to this day, that's like my only double jointed body part is my thumb <laughs> because it like dislocated partially on that moment. And yeah, completely random memories. But we did that during the intermissions of the Colorado, Florida series. So you don't have to be a hockey player to have hockey related injuries. Like that's the cool thing about this sport. <laughs> Like exactly. Battle stars are not exclusive to the guys on the ice. <laughs> we did our part. So obviously everybody knows you as the voice of the Panthers. You've been doing it now for how many years have you been at the mic, Andrew? This is season number five. Gosh, season already. You're at a milestone season. That's pretty amazing, man. Time flies. So, how did you get started? Because like you don't hear many kids saying, I want to grow up to be a PA announcer. So like what got you from, you know, whatever you, got you into this industry i guess to sitting at that microphone with the best seat in the house every game oh man it's a long story so i'll make the short version of it um (laughs) i i was that kid who if we were all hanging out with friends back in the day and we were playing video games i would just announce whatever was going on i was just kind of like whether it be mario golf or nhl pa 93 or whatever game we were playing i would just be announcing in the background and that isn't public address. You know, I was probably doing play by play back then just saying, you know, what's happening. If it was a golf game, I would probably do it in a British accent or something just to have fun. <laughs> you know, That's it was just, we would kind of imitate what we saw in sports center. It was all these, you know, th- there was no limit to this journey. It was just a million and one different things went into it. Um, and I actually, the first bit of realness that I did outside of video games and all that stuff was I was a sports writer in high school um, and that's really where the journey started. I joined the school newspaper. Uh, me and a, a buddy of mine kind of revolutionized what the sports section there did. We wrote a column together. It was called Pick and Roll. Uh, we were fortunate enough to win some awards, and I, I picked up some as a sports writer. And it really was seeming like I was going to go into sports writing for uh, as long as I was in high school and all that stuff. But it really changed when I got to Florida Atlantic University and I found Al Radio which is the student-run radio station at FAU. And there was, you know, to their credit, there was no qualifications. If you wanted a radio show and you could, you know, talk, you basically got a radio show. So there I was as a freshman, probably two, three, four weeks onto campus, and I was hosting the Rush Hour Sports Report on Al Radio. And that's really where the broadcasting dream started. Um, That show lasted my entire career all four years at FAU um and the if you want to talk specifics um it was when I saw the FAU hockey tryouts flyer that really kind of launched my career um the coach back then uh Scott Grosky who's still a really good friend of mine uh I contacted him and I just asked you know hey I'm not interested in trying out for the hockey team but I'm really interested in being a broadcaster do you guys have any anybody in that position are you open to this kind of thing and he was like We've got nothing. This sounds so exciting. How can we make this happen kind of thing? And that is really what gave birth to the uh, the big part of the dream, um, which also, believe it or not, started as play-by-play. So back then, 
we had something I, I'll never forget it. The system we used at FAU was called the Comerex, and we had to plug it into phone lines to call games. And at it was at the Skate Zone out in Lake Worth, Florida, where I called my first ever FAU hockey game. And we had to connect through a credit card line with the Comerex and have someone back at the student-run radio station staying there and to put us on the air. And it was just, it was a wild process. We were calling the game from the corner of the rink, almost no vantage point, but it was just the greatest experience. And then by the following season, I was doing play-by-play and public address simultaneously at the uh, Panthers Ice Den, as it's known now. But I, I think so it was were they, probably... they broadcasting your play-by-play or were you pausing play-by-play to announce the goals and penalties? <laughs> So I had two microphones. I had my blue snowball, <laughs> my blue snowball USB microphone where I was doing play by play on the internet at that point for the families and friends of the team and anyone who was interested in FAU sports. We had moved to a, a site called Ustream to just kind of do it online. And then I had in my other hand, I had the public address microphone for the rink itself. And so basically I would look for opportune times to kind of be like, oh, and they dumped the puck down deep. And then I'd be like, penalty to number five so i'd kind of like go back and forth with the play-by-play and the public address it was i was living the dream man there was nothing cooler than that to do both at the same time it was a blast did you ever mix up the mics and start doing like pa into the play-by-play <laughs> broadcast and vice versa I, I can't say that ever happened i'm very meticulous wow. when it comes to that thing oh, i probably would have done that at least like once a game <laughs> And that's something that we have in common i was the canes pa or the canes broadcaster play-by-play for a few years and it's just it's funny how like you mentioned like you know you're doing it for the the families of the players and for anybody who's but like that's actually a really important thing because so many of these guys like they're playing college level hockey and they're far away from home they don't have an opportunity really for their families to see them so while it may not be the the broadest audience uh, I feel like it's a pretty important role for youth hockey or for young hockey and uh and it's something I took some pride in I know that you did as well so it's just cool that to be able to do that you know I got a lot of thank yous from the families. They would write comments on the internet. I made friends with some of the families of the players just because they were so grateful. There were families up in New Jersey as their kids were playing in South Florida. They rarely got to go to games, but I was able to kind of be that link. And it was it was definitely a, a special thing. And it was also cool because there were a lot of people and parents in the crowd. And that was really the first where I would the first time I would get kind of that glimpse of the future where people were like man you you really have a knack for this there would be people i still remember this one uh lady came up to me and she's like you're gonna be the next marv albert and i was like okay <laughs> like i mean <laughs> thank you like <laughs> it was you know so you would get little comments like that and i also um i had the the pleasure of calling the acha national championships i got to call the high school hockey national championships uh, a couple of really cool tournaments that went on at the Panthers Ice Den, and by then I was really transitioning into mostly play uh, into public address. And there were people constantly, like coaches of the teams who came in from around the country, and they were like, "Are you the Panthers PA announcer?" And I was like, "Man, I wish." And they were like, "You should be." And those were kind of the moments that really like lit the fire that kept the dream alive. And you know, it was it was exciting. No, I remember, uh, I guess it was, I guess, five years ago, a little over five and a half years ago, when like they, they put it out there that they, the Panthers were looking for a new PA guy. And I was really curious to see because like I remember they had, was it Bill Murphy for a while did it? Yeah. And then they, they brought back uh, Jay Rokish, the the chain. Yep. He's well known for his Canes PA announcing. And so I was curious whether they were, you know, like what route they were going to go. And then obviously when you were hired, you know, at the time, I didn't know who you were. I just saw, you know, I guess maybe there was press release or something. I was like, oh, they got a nice young guy in there. You know, this should be interesting. And uh, hey, it's worked out really well. Obviously, like, you know, I've been a big fan of yours since you got started. And I know that you get a, a very positive reaction from Panthers fans as well. So, you know, as you said, you know, living the dream, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it wasn't always, you know, all pretty and stuff. I know, you know, speaking of, of going that that route, um, it was a completely open audition I was tech. No one really knew this, but I was technically the backup public address announcer for the two years before I got the job. So in 2013 and 2014, I was the backup PA. Um, I okay, never. Got so, so you kind of had that little in, which always helps. Of course, but unfortunately, I never got to you know sit in. I didn't even get to sit in, um, let alone call games. So there wasn't a ton of that experience, but it was still an important title. Well, where are you um, going to but... sit? It's such a small little buck. Come on, <laughs> yeah. Andrew. Well, don't forget, I was the first one who sat downstairs. 
the year before I was there, it was the PA announcer was not downstairs. So oh, there really? was room. Yeah. It was me who uh, was told to move. It, so it you started... didn't even pick that place. They told like, hey, you have to go sit on ice level now. Oh, Sorry. trust me. Trust right? me. Off, off ice was not the least bit happy about it at the beginning. Oh, really? They definitely they asked their it. leg space. Oh yeah, I mean it's cramped down there. There's no, there's four of us sitting at the table, and then a couple more towards the penalty box side. So it is cramped down there, a hundred percent. But fortunately, I consider Off Ice to be great friends of mine. Now they're all really good guys. Um, but at first, yeah, I was completely infiltrating. They didn't know who this kid was, so I, I get that you know it was a struggle. But yeah, I mean that that was the first year that they moved that position downstairs to kind of be closer to the refs and be able to get things you know done quicker, I guess. Is that like a league-wide thing or just something that they did down here? No, it's not league-wide. If you were to ask PA announcers, you'd probably have close to a 50-50 split of some who are upstairs in the press box, some who are downstairs at ice level, and there are probably one or two. I know the Panthers used to put them at mezzanine level, so sometimes you'll find them randomly in the middle, but generally either upstairs or downstairs. Yeah, actually, now that you're you're saying that, I do kind of remember. I think at one point they may have even put a camera on Bill, and he was up kind of like where the camera well is, up in that that center uh, center yeah. vantage point, right? Yeah, they've done it in probably three different spots over the past decade, but I have been at ice level for every single game of my career. It can't do much better than that. That's that's pretty awesome. I mean, I remember like uh, seeing, I don't know if you'd posted on social media, but like back when James Reimer was on the team, he would always go and like do a big bump right in front of you and... That's the kind of stuff as like growing up as a fan, you kind of geek out about uh, now that you're at a, <laughs> the professional level, at least for, for me, sure. like, like I, I love being able to cover the team and it's an awesome thing to do, but I'm constantly, constantly just kind of like ground myself, like reminding myself, like, all right, this is what you're doing. This is where you are. Chill out. <laughs> so it, it's just so cool, man. I, I, I just love geeking out over it. And I try not to let that, let that go too much. Cause I think that's what keeps us, uh, you know, appreciative of what we're doing. Oh, well, for sure. We don't get much, especially in my role, I get basically zero interaction with the players. People always ask, do you talk to the players? You know, what are they doing kind of thing? I'm like, no, like we specifically are not supposed to talk to the players and I don't. Um, so the only little bits of interaction you ever get are pretty much downstairs during warmups and stuff. I know, uh, like you said, we had James Reimer who would kind of pound the glass when he was getting ready. To, it was only when he was starting. So it was kind of a cool uh, little tradition. And uh, Vinny Trocek used to shoot pucks at the little circle that was right in front of our faces. And ironically, he never got it through until uh, just recently. It was like one of the last games before the deadline, and he got it straight through the circle. And it happened to be the one game that we were on national television, and there was a poll in the way to um, get this special camera angle for the national broadcast. So it's never there. The one game the puck comes through the circle at us, there was a pole in the way and it blocked the puck. So it was just kind of one of those like, holy cow, meant to be kind of things. Uh, Maybe but... Vinny was just so accurate that he <laughs> yeah. didn't purposely get it through the hole till he knew you'd be protected. Exactly. That's definitely you know, that's, that's definitely the glass half full way to put it. Absolutely. But yeah, that's... I will say, you know, we've had everyone down there, you know, and certainly all Panthers down there. And we've had all superstars from the league, Sidney Crosby, Alex Ovechkin, Connor McDavid sitting in the penalty box, you know, just a few feet away. The only time I've, I've ever sort of like geeked out, it was before the game. It was when uh, actually Mike Matheson's wife, Emily Falzer came in with her gold medal. And I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. I took a picture with her. She let me hold the gold medal. That was like one of, she's the only one to this day that I've ever asked for a picture. You know, we've had Ray Allen and other legends and stuff down there. And that was the one time I was like, all right, this is too cool. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a good choice for your one picture. I do have to say, cause it, that gold medal is pretty awesome. It is heavy, man. That, that so, was really sitting where you sit. All right. I don't know how plugged in you have to be to your headphones and everything like that, but I mean, there have been some pretty dramatic chirps that have gone from box to box over the years, and that's literally over your shoulders. So if you heard anything cool, anything funny, you don't have to throw out any names if you're worried about getting in trouble. But, you know, there have been any cool penalty box interactions or st- just guys screaming their lungs off at the refs, you know, stuff like that. Oh, absolutely. Um, I would say it happens pretty often, especially after a fight. That's one of the things that I had to learn. And my boss uh, who hired me, John, kind of warned me. He's like, there may be times where they're cursing and it's so loud you might <laughs> you have may to be hold subject off. to profane language and he no but he said like you may have to hold off 
briefly on the on the fighting call, like if they're cursing right next to your microphone kind of thing, oh. you know? So <laughs> Oh no. <laughs> he gave me some warnings just of what to expect and stuff like that. Um fortunately they generally keep their distance at this point. But yeah, so I would say that after fights, it's kind of a 75-25 split. About 25% of the time, the players come in there and they are heated and cursing at each other and very unhappy about the circumstances. You know, maybe there was a misunderstanding about someone pushed the goalie or no, it was your player who pushed the goalie kind of thing. Um, but seven, I would say about 75% of the time, it is amiable. It is nothing but respect. It is, in some cases, advice. Um, sometimes the younger kids who get into a scrap with some of the older guys who are used to it, they'll be like, oh, the, the, the veteran will be like, oh, you should have ducked there. Like next time, you know, go like this, take it, take uh, a firm grab here kind of thing. So I would say three out of every four times, it is extremely respectful. A good fight, man. Good fight. Um, it, it's really an interesting place to be. <laughs> nice. You see, I know this is an audio medium, but I'm sitting here just shaking my head with that proud, that's why hockey players are the best, man. That's, <laughs> you know, that, that's what I'm doing sitting here in front of my microphone. That, that's really neat. I, I like hearing that. The respect um, is off the charts for sure. So if I have to say, you know, can you think of anybody who's just a prolific penalty box screamer, whiner, complainer? You know, if there anybody that pops in your head from over the years? No. And I'm not, I wouldn't even go there, to be honest. <laughs> I'm not going to throw anyone under the bus, you know? <laughs> well, it doesn't have to be a guy in the Panthers. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, we, we see these teams so infrequently that it's it's kind of tough to uh, establish a profile. Um, Fair enough. But, yeah, I mean, there, there have definitely been times where I've even heard off ice say, like, all right, you know, enough. Kind of, you know. Is that a step in there and say, all right, all right, buddy, come on. There Maybe was actually, are almost I don't up. Know. It's time to shut up and relax. I, I can talk about this because it was a national story that everyone saw. Um, but do you remember when uh, Nazem Kadri hit the off-ice official in the face of this stick by accident? No. Did that happen here? It happened here. It was right next to me. One of my good buddies, uh, one of my favorite off-ice officials and one of my favorite people in the world, to be honest, um, was the penalty box keeper on, on the visitor's side. And Kadri was so upset about the call that he slammed the door shut. And on the backswing, the butt end of his stick hit the off-ice official in the chin and he like came over to him and he was like in his face. Like he didn't do anything crazy, but he was just like, no, like, you know, he, he, he calmed him down real quick. And of course, Kadri was extremely uh, apologetic and, and obviously it was a total accident, but yeah, check out the story. It, it was, there's a, a video of it. Like it was insane. Oh boy. Uh, I mean, Nazem Kadri doesn't even exactly have the most sterling reputation for his, <laughs> uh, his temper temperament on the ice but oh that, that's crazy i'm surprised i don't remember that but it's interesting that the off-ice officials that have that kind of uh i don't want to say power but you know that they're not afraid to, that they just have to shut up and deal with what the players do because i guess they all wear nhl blazers so they're an extension of the lead right correct 100 percent. definitely wanted to ask you because you get to make the decisions and how you call the names right like so who gets like the high pitch name or like every so often you'll throw like a, like a baritone name at us, you know, like yep. what's, what's the, uh, the mindset when you make those kind of decisions. So my biggest pet peeve from day one is a public address announcer who says every single name in the exact same cadence in the exact same way every single night. And I know that's not everybody's pet peeve, but for me personally, I've heard it over the years. I've heard it in all sorts of stadiums. Um, I just can't take when every name is said in the exact same way. So from day one, my goal was to establish multiple ways of saying every single name so that if one person had the long pause at the end of, or if I held out the first syllable of the last name, there was a way for me to kind of change up the way the next guy, if it was a starting lineup or something was said, or if it was a assist after a goal or something. So that's been something that I've worked on since the beginning. Um, and I also like to kind of take influence sometimes. Like, obviously, I have my own style. There's no doubt about that. But there are a couple of specific calls that I've kind of taken influence over the years. Um, the infamous swagger call, uh, which started off with Brian Campbell back in my first year, um, that was taken from the Portland Trailblazers PA announcer. Um, when he used to do the starting lineup for the Blazers, he would do Robin Lopez in kind of this 
Robin Lopez, kind of like swagger. And I was like, you know what? That is the coolest thing ever. The NHL doesn't have anything like that. I need to bring some of this NBA flair to the NHL. That's where the swagger call was born. Um, in terms of other stuff, most of it was me. Like the one of my favorite calls is the Colton Sevier, like the super the super staccato. That that was me. Um, but the new Eric Halla, which has kind of gained some fanfare, um, was actually inspired by Space Jam, believe it or not. Um, I know that sounds crazy, but in Space Jam, when they're doing the Toon Squad starting lineup and the mouse is on the mic with that big voice, um, he introduces Michael Jordan in that same cadence. He goes, Michael Jordan. And from like day one, I knew I wanted to do somebody in that style and no one really ever fit that until we got Eric Hall in the trade. And I was like, you know what? This is perfect. I'm going to unleash it. And <laughs> I think it, I, I still, after every single time he's scored or assisted or come up, I always get like five or 10 tweets right after. Like, I love the way you say Eric Hall's name. So I guess it's worked out. That's cool, man. I see. I like that you have the ability to make it unique. And like you say, you have a style that's your own, but I think that's really important when you're in this kind of an industry, because you want to stand out a little bit, like you don't want to stand out for the wrong reasons or anything, but to have your own little area of flair. And obviously it's well-received. I, I think that's great that you're, you're not afraid to kind of put that into, into good use. Well, I mean, let's face it. Every single arena is different. And that's the coolest thing. Like people pine after going after different or going to different arenas. Like it's, it's a, a trek for a lot of people almost in a religious way where they're like, I'd love to see every arena. I know that it's the same thing, very popular for like every baseball stadium and stuff like that. It becomes, you know, a, a rite of passage almost like people want to do this. It, it, and so part of that though, is that every stadium is unique. People want to experience different things on every single side of it. And the game presentation aspect of it is really one of the biggest controllables. You know, it's it's an intro video that gives you goosebumps or it's a, a way that a name is announced in a special way that, you know, makes you excited and get on your feet. Like these are the the moments that separate stadiums from each other and really promote that home ice advantage that we're all so desperate to do. Amen, brother. Absolutely. And uh, just from a fan's perspective, that's the kind of stuff that you want to hear. So it's awesome that that's at the front of your mind. Um, the last well, that... thing that I want to ask you about, um, and hopefully this isn't a big swing and a miss because then I'm going to have to edit it out. But um, <laughs> from from your from your seat from the last five years, when you know when I just asked you coolest moments, coolest things you've had to announce, coolest things that you've sat there feet away from, like you know what are the top things that you can remember from sitting in that chair that Woo. that stand out in your head? On the spot here. Woo. Um, well, the the first no-brainer is obviously the moment where Yarmir Yager moved into second place in the all-time points list. Um, that was something we were sitting on for a long time. We knew it was coming. We were prepared for a long time. And it was really the only time in my career where I've kind of been told, like, you know what? Like, you got to nail this, basically. <laughs> you know, Like, when this moment happens, like, you got to own the moment. You got to be strong. You got to be good. You got to sell it in a way you've never sold anything before. Um, you got and, coached up. Yeah. And so I knew I like that, it. you know, this was obviously a historical moment. And so it happened with that crazy, we didn't know if he got the assist. And then of course we have that famous quote, which I probably can't say on air, but it went off my uh, rear end is basically what Yager said when he got that famous you assist. You can say it on the podcast. You're, you're good here. <laughs> We're allowed to swear. I think your audience knows though. Um, yeah. And, and so uh, it was a lot of, in that moment, it was just so much pressure. Like, we were waiting for the official call. They weren't dropping the puck because they knew it was possible. And if he got it, they knew there was going to be a stoppage. Um, and so I remember um, the off-ice official next to me getting that call down. And he was like, repeat it. And he said it again. And he was like, you know, number from 68. And it was confirmed. And we we nodded and all that stuff. We got the goal call off. And, and um you know, that was just truly special. And if you see that famous picture of Randy Moeller with Yarmir Yager handing him that stick, I'm actually in the very background of that standing up in the, in the, in the distance. So that's kind of a crazy cool piece of history that we have there. Um, so that's definitely the no brainer coolest thing. Um, outside of that, probably the most surreal moment was going through that double overtime playoff game in my first year because that is the only overtime game I've ever called in playoff format. Um, 
and it's the one time you know it, you don't know what to expect really in that in your yeah. position because the rules obviously completely changed from the regular season obviously as a huge hockey fan i know what's coming but you kind of in your first time ever experiencing that in that chair it's almost like a whirlwind and i still remember um so i kind of have food traditions and stuff that i have every single game and so part of my food traditions is i have a power bar and i have that between the second and third periods in the second intermission and then after the game so during this double overtime game i still remember tweeting like uh rationing the power bar like the hunger games down here because it was just like <laughs> intermission after intermission and the game was going and going and going and I was running out of food and I was starving but like at the same time you're obviously super distracted and stuff like that um so the the double OT game was definitely something that sticks out in terms of just craziness crazy moments in in the chair um there are a couple like super specific goals where like you remember it just because of the moment and how crazy the game was um, I still remember the game against Vegas where we went into overtime and we beat them in overtime. And I was literally, I was a fan in that moment. I was in my chair. I stood up as um, the play was developing. And I forget if it was Ekblad or somebody finished the, off the overtime winner that night. And when he did, I stood up and cheered. Like I was just a fan in that moment. And that's, that's kind of like why I always think it's so important to have a fan in the PA chair because it's one thing to have a great voice and to know when to do this and know when to do that. But when you have an, a fan, a super, a, a former super fan in that chair, like, you know, that you're not going to get anything weird and that's uncalled for in a situation. Like there's nothing worse than when you're down by five goals, having an announcer get on super excited, like, Oh, you know, this, this, that, and the other, you know, or stumbling or selling out like a, an away goal when it's inopportune, like, I, as a former fan, like, I, I feel like I'm uniquely positioned to know, you know, they don't want to hear this. Um, you, let's rush through this or let's put the certain emphasis on this because this is a big moment kind of thing. So I'm in those moments when, when the Panthers came back against Anaheim this year from four, nothing, like I'm living and breathing and, and going nuts down there and, and, and probably cursing in the box like out of excitement stuff that like obviously the mic has to be turned off for like I am that fan in there you know reacting to everything that the crowd is so those are some of the the cooler moments that always stand out in those big goals when the crowd goes crazy and and then at the end when the rats start flying and I have a really cool seat to watch the rats go flying over my face onto the ice like there's some really cool things for sure yeah I guess it helps uh kind of be part of the moment when you're kind of at the epicenter of all the fans. So like the, the more intense and the more loud it gets and the more you get that vibrant feeling in the arena, like it's all reverberating right down to where you are. So like you mentioned that comeback against Anaheim, like I, I can just remember the building, it kind of building the arena was kind of building and building and building. <laughs> and uh, to just to, to where Ekblad scored that going overtime. And even like, you know, you say you were a fan down there. Thank God. Like I'm kind of on, on my own little corner in the press box because I was, like quietly fist pumping. And I think when Ekblad <laughs> scored, like I pushed my chair back and thank God nobody was back there. And it was just like, it's one of the cool things to be a part of. So like, I can definitely see where that would be a kind of a nice feeling for you, a, a way to be involved with everything in, going on. In those moments, I'll actually sometimes, um, cause my headphones are somewhat noise canceling and they're over both my ears. So in those moments, sometimes I will take my headphones just to crack off my ear so that I can let in the crowd noise and like that, those big goals to get within one to tie and to beat Anaheim that night. Like it was just wild. Now, speaking of wild, as we're going to wrap up the interview with a different topic here. Um, <laughs> I don't know how many people out there know this about you. I'm guessing if they follow you on social media, they have a pretty good idea, but you have actually been a contestant on American Ninja Warrior. Is that true? That, that yes, is, sir. So, I mean, personally, like, I'm a fan. My wife and my son and her father have been fans for a long time. They got me into it a few years ago. And I just have so much respect for the amount of work it takes to do so many different ridiculous things that I could not. I probably wouldn't get over one obstacle. And I'm in <laughs> relatively good shape for a late 30s guy that plays ice hockey. That's crazy, man. Like, well, how in the world what, did you start chasing I'll, that dream? I'll tell you what. I almost didn't make it past the first obstacle. Um, but... Yeah, the the dream really started 
as a fan, just like your family and, and people all over the place. Like I watched the show. I was like, this is super cool. I could absolutely never do this. And <laughs> it's the natural it was, reaction, right? Absolutely. I mean, you see people supporting their body weight on one hand, one finger. It's, oh, it's insane. The, the strength is just absurd. Um, so you're watching this and you're just like, oh, this is cute. Like I could never do this in my wildest dreams, but I was hitting the gym a little bit more often. And, you know, in the back of my mind, I was like, this would be cool. So one day I found out that there was a gym in Miami, uh, called Miami free running with former superstar JJ Woods was the owner back then. And I tested out a ninja gym for the first time in my life, five, six years ago. Uh, and I was awful, straight awful there. I still remember there were these kind of like pegs that came out of the wall where you were supposed to like go arm over arm to kind of move across the wall on them. And as soon as I let go of holding my body weight up with two arms to put all my body weight on one arm to try to transfer, I fell right off every single time. Um, I spent like an hour on the salmon ladder and I got up one rung ever by the last time I did it. I fell off a hundred times and I finally got up one rung on the salmon ladder and I was like, let's go. Uh, it was extremely humbling because Ninja Warrior training is unlike anything that I had ever done. Like you could lift all the weights you want. You could have a 300 pound bench press. You could deadlift four. It doesn't matter. That's not going to prepare you. If anything, it's going to hinder you from being a good ninja because there's just so much weight pulling you down, even if it's muscle. So some of the best ninjas are, are lanky. They're 5'10", 6 foot, 140. And I'm 5'8", 170 with a pretty good amount of muscle these days. And so it, it doesn't really lend itself to Ninja Warrior. Um, so the only reason I had any chance at getting on the show was my story. You know, they, they were really interested in my job. Um, first year I submitted a tape. Admittedly, I wasn't very excited. There was no energy on my tape. I did not get chosen. Um, the next year I put together a much better tape, much more energy. And I was selected in my second year submitting. That was season nine of American Ninja Warrior in 2017. When you say led... selected, like, does that mean like they choose you to even try out? Is no, that how hard it is to just get, get in? When you're selected, you are on the show. So you basically do an application online and a two to three minute video. From that, they get hundreds and hundreds of thousands of, of submissions and they choose 600 total to get on the show. 100. Oh, wow. in, yeah. 100 in each region. Um, and so the odds are astronomical to begin with. So they they chose me that year. I guess they really liked my story uh, of the job. And it led to the wildest 48 hours of my life. They asked me to come up for an interview before taping, which was on a Thursday. This all happened on the last two games of the Panthers season in the 2016-2017 season. So Thursday, okay. night we, Thursday night, we have a game. Thursday, I wake up at 6 in the morning in Wellington, Florida, I drive four hours, three and a half hours, whatever it was, to Daytona Beach, where they were filming American Ninja Warrior. They got me on for a pre-interview, they called it. Um, they took a whole bunch of B-roll. They did a whole bunch of footage just in case you do really well on the show. You tell your story. Um, I drove back at about one o'clock, stopped in Wellington, ate dinner, drove to the game, called the game, did jerseys off our backs, um, and crashed. The next day, got up Friday, drove back to Daytona Beach, and went on and competed on the show in Daytona Beach that night. I ran the course at 4 o'clock in the morning on Saturday morning. It's an overnight taping, and I did not run until 4 o'clock. I left the shoot at 6.30 in the morning, got home at 10 o'clock in the morning on Saturday. It was the last game of the Panthers season that Saturday. My call time is, was 3.34 or something. I slept from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., got up, ate a little something, drove to the game, and called the last game of the season. Um, it was by far the wildest and craziest 48 hours of my life, but I would not have traded the experience for anything. So how would you do on the course? <laughs> I well, sound like I'm listening to your story. I'm like, wait, you forgot one part. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I think I did pretty well especially for a rookie season. So like I said, I almost fell on the first obstacle, which um, back then it was the floating steps. It is okay. since cha it's changed twice. It, it, it was originally the Quinn step. Actually, it was originally the quad steps. And it was the Quinn like you steps. Jump back and forth kind of. Yes. Like a frog leap almost. Yes. So it started out when they were all kind of level with each other and bigger. 
by the time I got on the show, they were called the floating steps. At that point, they were curved and they were inclined and they were right. rising. So each step that you jumped on, the steps got progressively taller and they got progressively steeper. So this first obstacle was no joke. The literal only easy move of the whole course uh, was stepping onto that first step from the platform. So you're on the starting platform. You take a step onto that first floating step, which is almost flat, and it's right in front of you. You can't miss the first step. After that, you're on your own. Every man and woman for himself and herself. Um, you're jumping back and forth. The steps are getting farther apart and they're getting steeper. Is there, I'm sorry, they're not farther apart. They're steeper and they're um, higher. So you're going upwards and you're trying not to fall in the process. So what I learned really quick on that obstacle was that you had to jump with everything you had in you. You had to grab the top of the step, make sure you were good, then turn to the next step and jump back. And they said like, look, if you sit on the step, we're going to disqualify you. Like you can't take your time unless like you have no other choice. So um, on the third out of five steps, I reached it. I turned around and my foot slipped off the step and I, I heard the entire crowd gasp. I just heard this audible <laughs> gasp and I pulled myself back up. My foot did not touch the water, pulled myself back up. And I was like, you know what? I got to get off these damn things. So I started <laughs> jumping with everything that I had jumped to the fourth step, jumped to the fifth step, jumped to the rope, swung back like two or three times and completed it. And I was just at that point I was lit. Like I was, I had never felt an adrenaline adrenaline rush like that in my entire life and to this day if i go back and think about my time on the show goosebumps if i'm like laying in bed i will not fall asleep for a half hour because my brain will just be running a million miles an hour at that point so i got off the first obstacle uh we had to climb up to the second one because it started at a much higher point and i was like slamming the stairs with my hands as i was climbing up like i was getting the crowd going it was just so wild and i kind of have to recall like this because unfortunately my run was never shown and it there's no access to it anywhere so Aww. to this to this day i've still never seen myself on the course which is really disappointing because i'd love to see like how family and friends were reacting to it and stuff yeah, like a that shame that they can't like hook you up with the footage just for your own personal exactly. use i mean you know exactly you know so but you know that's not my call hopefully someday someone will break into the archives and and get me my run but <laughs> so the second <laughs> obstacle in my on the course was called the rolling pin and boy, did I luck out with that obstacle, man. Um, because the one thing that usually happens on the second obstacle is you're usually swinging. You're usually doing what they call a, a lache, which is basically where you throw your body forward and catch something. At that point, I had no idea how to do any of those types of skills. So from the stories that I heard, the obstacle that they tested out for the second obstacle did not work. So they kind of had to do kind of like a last minute change. And they came up with the rolling pin, which was literally just squeeze this horizontal bar with your arms, hug it for dear life and let go at the right time. And if there was one thing I had at that point, it was bicep strength. I yeah, love it. It was like a big they, pendulum, right? It was, it was basically this, this long rolling pin. It, it was, it was literally <laughs> just a horizontal bar and it, it started at the top of a track and you had to hug it for dear life with both your arms. And what would happen is it would go off one side of the track and crash down then it would go off the other side of the track and crash down. Then it would continue all the way down the path. So you're, you're basically doing a decline from maybe, you know, 20, okay. 20 feet in the air or whatever. You've got something similar where you're holding on with both hands and you kind of ride it down like a bar. Yeah, except you were hugging it. So you're, right. you had your, your right. arms around it. It was basically resting against my biceps. Um, and How I had good are watched... you at spooning? Here's obstacle two. <laughs> More or less. So I had been watching this obstacle all night long. I was watching and I was noticing in my head, it seemed like the people who were getting past this obstacle were the ones who were not trying to time their, their descent. They were the ones who were just kind of taking a hit and basically flying off this thing. So the people who were kind of trying to let go of the rolling pin at the right time and be all fancy and practical and, and make it look good were the ones who were going in the water. They were not getting to the end of it. And by the same token, if you held on too long, it took you back over the water and you automatically lost, basically. So you had to time it at the exact right time. So what I was noticing was it was kind of like a quarterback who was in the pocket. He's got his receiver open, but he knows he's going to have to take a huge hit to make the good throw. I decided from the beginning that I was going to take the hit. 
So basically what I did is I held on as long as I could. And as soon as I felt my body get like destroyed, basically the 10th of a second that the rolling pin reached the end of the track, I let go. And I remember going completely 180 onto my back and praying that I wasn't going to end up in the water. And I just remember hearing whack. And I had come (laughs) down on the pad in the right spot. And I had knocked the wind out of myself because um, I landed flush on my back. And I just remember everyone going nuts. And it was the coolest moment because not everyone was surviving that. And I was in my rookie year and I wasn't a very good ninja at that point. So I was just so excited. My goal was just to get past the first obstacle. So to get past the second one uh, was just one of the coolest things, uh, probably my coolest athletic achievement to this day. Um, And then unfortunately on the third obstacle, I came face to face with the debut of the wing nuts, which uh, was the most awkward obstacle ever built at the time. It was basically side to side laches where you you were basically on these window panes almost and they rocked up and down side to side kind of thing and you had to throw your body ninjas were used to making forward and back laches but now you were supposed to make side to side laches so you had to throw your body from right to left and make your way sideways and what I didn't know is that some people had had gotten a hold of this obstacle and built it uh, a little uh, a version of it beforehand so some of the people who got through it had actually practiced it beforehand the first time i got on it was the first time i'd ever seen it um so (laughs) i had no chance um the last story i'll tell because i know i'm taking up a ton of time here but it's you know it's always fun to recap this thing you're good um so i didn't hear anything besides crowd noise for the entire time that i was on the course i was in complete tunnel vision Um, It was just me and what was in front of me, and I basically blacked out everything to the sides. So I didn't hear anyone cheering for me. I didn't hear anyone calling my name. Um, It was just me and the course. But when I was on the wing nuts, I remember someone had told me beforehand that I was supposed to build up my momentum by keeping my arms straight. And for some reason, um, my arms were in an L pattern. They called them uh, L's in Ninja when you kind of have your arms at a 90-degree bent angle. And so... I was not doing it right. And as a result, I wasn't building up a ton of momentum. And I'll never forget it. Uh, Lucas Gomez, part of the Brazi Bros, who have made some pretty co- uh, pretty good imp- uh, appearances on American Ninja Warrior and who I had trained with briefly before the show. Um, Lucas calls out the only thing that I heard during my entire run, cut through all the noise. He says, straighten your arms, bro. And that is the only thing that I heard on the entire course. And so I straightened my arms, but unfortunately, I still wasn't good enough to pull off the the obstacle. But it was getting me a little bit closer. So that was just like the funny thing of you you go through these experiences, and sometimes you end up in such tunnel vision. But sometimes things just manage to cut through all that silence and kind of stick with you. So that was my time on Ninja Warrior. So I got to the third obstacle. Um, I believe I went, I think only like 30% of the competition went farther than me, i.e. like the fourth obstacle and beyond. So... Um, I thought it was a pretty good rookie run. Um, I know a lot of the veterans told me they thought it was a pretty good run. Um, but unfortunately, I submitted in season 10, didn't get picked. Season 11 didn't get picked. Um, and obviously, season 12 is now on hiatus. Um, they actually had to call off the tapings of the first city like days before they were going to film the first city. Um, as far as I know, I was not getting chosen again this year, even though uh, a producer had reached out to me to kind of update my my uh, audition tape at one point. Um, but I did not get the call when my region was supposed to get the call. So as far as I know, I was not going to get the call this year, but you know, after this crazy uh, virus passes, you know, maybe things will change. Maybe I'll, I'll have a chance to compete this year. I don't know. That would be cool. Are you ready to roll? Like if your name gets called, you're training, you're, you know, you're good to go. Like if they say, Andrew, I need you on the course tomorrow. Like, are you ready? Oh yeah. I mean, like I'm not doing ninja specific training anymore. Um, I suffered a pretty, gnarly finger injury last year and that kind of um it makes it a little bit harder to do ninja things and a little bit more painful to do ninja things well, it's, it's, the uh, the uh the obstacle you were just talking about i mean that's like all grip yeah and i think my grip is pretty good like at worst i'm at like 98 99 um but i do enjoy weight training and cardio and obstacle course like spartan training a little bit more than ninja training so like i'm not necessarily specifically training for it but if they were to call and say look you're on tomorrow i would 100 percent compete i would 100 percent have a chance to do well on that regional qualifier course um and i'd give it my all you know 
Nice. Well, I, I'm excited to hopefully hear that the story continues. You know, I love how uh, how positive uh, how positive you are just about everything we've talked about. Like, it's really good to hear, man. And, and certainly, I mean, you you've known this for a while, but you've got a fan in me. Hey, I appreciate. I'm a fan of yours too, man. Oh, too kind, <laughs> my friend. And thank you so much for for coming on the podcast, man. I really appreciate it. We'll, we'll definitely have to do this again. Hopefully, uh, the next time we do it, we'll be uh, doing hockey again. Obviously. Uh, doesn't seem like anything that's in the cards in the immediate future, unfortunately. But when everything gets, uh, hopefully everybody starts getting better and we get back on track, we can uh, we can do this again. I certainly hope so, man. And you know, my thoughts and 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 good wishes are going out for every single person who's been affected by this. Everyone who has a family member who's been affected like this, and a lot of us even who haven't come in contact with the coronavirus are feeling its effects. I know. Uh, I'm struggling career-wise. A lot of people around me are struggling career-wise because it's just turned our world completely upside down. And there's a lot of anxiety out there with good reason. And I just, you know, everyone, I'm with you. We're going to get through this. I know it's a crazy time. We're all feeling anxious right now, uh, but we're going to overcome this. We are. Absolutely, man. Um, That's why we got to do more stuff like this, to be honest. You know, like uh, those of us who have the capabilities of reaching out to people from home, uh, just more entertainment, more content, just something else to get your mind off of, uh, you know, the troubles and tri- trials and tribulations of life right now. It's tough. And as you said, so many people are suffering. So those of us that can do what we can from home, uh, it's good to be able to do it. And and thank you again for being a part of this, because uh, hopefully, you know, if one person listens to this and it makes their day a little bit better then we've done our job, right? Absolutely. That's what I always said. I used to run a podcast and my the one thing I would always say every episode, I'm like, if this helps one single person out there, then this podcast has done exactly what I wanted it to do. So, yeah, let's uh, continue to brainstorm. Let's come up with things that we can do to to make people's days a little bit brighter. I am always game for any sort of project or, or fun thing we can figure out. And thank you 100 percent, David. Thank you so much for having me on. Hey, it's my pleasure, man. And before we go, if you want to let people know like where they can find you, because I know in these times I've seen you've been doing some video game broadcasts on Twitter <laughs> and some other cool things, sports cards and stuff like that. So let people know where they can find you. Yeah, so Ember Vo- at Ember Voice everywhere. So Ember is I-M-B-E-R, Timber minus the T, all that good stuff. I've made it the exact same on all social media. So uh, the ones I use the most are definitely Twitter and Instagram at Ember Voice, and that's the same way you can find me on Twitch now, where occasionally you can find me streaming everything from backyard baseball to Mario Golf to NHL simulators and, and all that good stuff. So, yeah, at Ember Voice on all forms of social media and Twitch. Awesome. Andrew, thank you so much. And for everybody out there listening, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Chirping the Cats, and we will certainly try to bring you more content more frequently as uh, we're all on lockdown. So again, thank you so much. Uh, Leave us a message, subscribe, hit me up on Twitter at David's Work, and uh, we'll talk to you all guys next time, all right? Everybody take care. Stay home and stay safe.